Hello, Sex Appeal listeners. This is Kit Elliott, one of your hosts for this show. After an extended hiatus, Katie and I have reassessed our stance on the true crime genre as entertainment and the way it affects the real-world victims involved in these cases. While this show has always striven to highlight injustices and prejudice in our society and legal system over anything else, we still want to make some changes to assure absolutely no harm comes from the stories we tell here. So, now, Sex Appeal Women on Trial will focus solely on historic true crime cases. That is, trials that took place a minimum of 150 years ago. All of our episodes already posted over the years that discuss cases that do not meet this new criteria have been removed, which is the main reason for this announcement. Because several episodes were deleted in their entirety, some remaining episodes may contain references to something said in one of them. We apologize for any confusion or continuity problems this creates. We hope you can understand the reasoning behind this decision. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. This is part two of our two-part episode, Did Lizzie Really Take That Axe? Please be advised that this episode contains detail and discussion of violence in graphic detail. One of the theories we will be talking about will discuss physical and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Sex Appeal Woman on Trial. I'm Katie, and today we have a guest star, our friend Finn. It is currently Hell Week for Kit in their production of Godspell, so they are unable to do this week's episode. Hello everyone! A fun fact about me is that I once played a radio host in a play that was written and directed by Kit. Nice, what was it called? Elsewhere University, I think? I'm having a hard time remembering. (laughs) That's okay, it's been a while. Uh, So this is our second part of the two-part Lizzie Borden case. I talked about the lives of the Bordens and what we know about the morning of the crime. In this episode, I will talk about the trial, aftermath, theories, and media perception. So Finn, what do you know about the case? Um, I listened to about the first half of your podcast, Okay, but I didn't get to anything about the actual trial, so I don't really know anything about the trial. Well, so, like, all you know about is the rhyme? The crime, yeah. The crime and the rhyme? The crime and the rhyme. crime and the rhyme. Awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. All right, so... Once again, we do not condone murder and other crimes here on Sex Appeal. But gosh darn, don't we love a good story. Anyway, let's get started. Before we get started, I would like to state that most of our research from Part 1 and this episode was from the historical novel Cold Case to Case Close, Lisbeth Borden, My Story, by Richard Little and Beverly Volstand. I found this book very informative. It gave the autopsies as well as some transcripts of the trials. Even though I believe this book is a valuable and credited source, the main author Richard Little truly believes Lizzie did not commit the crimes. We will talk about his theory later, but I will be discussing the known and credited facts throughout the book. This book included background information and more detail about the crime and the individuals who investigated the crime scene. There was a total of 51 witnesses and family members who took the stand throughout the proceedings and trial, so I'll just be going over the more important highlights from each day of the trial itself. The proceeding for Lizzie began on August 11, 1892 in Taunton, Massachusetts. In Lizzie's first court appearance, she pleaded not guilty. During the inquest, there was no jury to hear the case. Judge Joseph Baisdell actually stopped the proceedings 
due to the secret second autopsy we talked about in last episode. In a private conversation after dismissing the court, Judge Basel pronounced Lizzie as probably guilty to Hosea and Knowlton, district attorney for the Southern District, as well as several members of the police department and Mayor Coughlin. Real professional here, guys. On August 12th, she was sent to Bristol County Jail in Taunton in cell number three. On Monday, August 22nd, Lizzie had her preliminary hearing, but due to problems with the testimony from witnesses, the proceedings were postponed until Thursday the 24th. There had been gossip going around that during the visit, Lizzie and Emma had a heated argument about their parents' murders. After the murders and Lizzie's imprisonment, local and national journalists were fixated on the story. They had tabloids pounced on every rumor about the accused and created a few of their own. At the same time, many of the citizens of Fall River was split on whether they defended or were against Lizzie. Lizzie's trial was one of the first trials in American history that was fueled by major mass-market newspapers and magazines. Once the American media created Lizzie Borden as a celebrity, Lizzie became a household name, and more and more people purchased a newspaper to follow the trial. Many historians compared Lizzie Borden's case to the modern-day O.J. Simpson's case. Lizzie's preliminary hearing was August 25th, three weeks after the Borden murders. The preliminary hearing lasted until September 1st, 1892. The preceding judge was Judge Joseph C. Baisdell. Prosecutor was District Attorney Knowlton, and defense attorneys were Andrew Jennings, the Borden's family lawyer, Jennings' assistant, Arthur Phillips, and Boston attorney Melvin Adams. We are going to skip the preliminary hearings. These hearings were pretty much what we talked about in our previous episode. Lizzie remained imprisoned for almost a year after her arrest while the prosecution put together a case against her. If you remember from our last episode, it was believed that some of the evidence were circumstantial and that there were no witnesses, no confessions, and no confirmed murdered weapon. After 10 months behind bars, Lizzie went on trial in front of the New Bedford Grand Jury starting on June 5, 1893. There were three judges, Chief Justice Albert Mason, Associate Justice Caleb Bulgett, and Associate Justice Justin Dewey. Prosecutors and defenders were the same, except prosecution now included Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody, and defenders included former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. The jury consisted of 12 rich old white dudes, and we don't need to know their names. Several reporters also reported what Lizzie and other female attendees wore at the trial. Ye old people magazine. <laughs> I know that this is a thing with female defendants these days, but society was always like this. So I think reporting on an individual's appearance can be relevant to the case. In the future, we will talk about Jody Aris's case, and I think her appearance is very interesting in court. When she was in court, she wore plain clothing and glasses. Some individuals who follow the trial believe this was a manipulative tactic to make the jury believe that she was a plain, innocent woman who looked like she could not have murdered anyone. Um, so an heiress named Anna Delvey, uh, that's, that's, I think the name that she went by. I can't remember what her actual last name is, but she, um, this woman, she came to New York and she made a bunch of people believe that she was very, very wealthy. And so they lent her a lot of money that she had no intention of ever paying back. And even once she was on trial for all this fraud and larceny, she was still obsessed with the way she was dressed. Um, 
One time her lawyer tried to make her wear more conservative clothing and she was distraught about it. So it makes sense that they would report on what she was wearing there because it's relevant to the type of lifestyle she was lying about. Mm. It was stated that five days before the trial, on June 1st, there was another axe murder in Fall River. The victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and Borden's murders were striking and noted by jurors. However, Jose Cordemelo, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of the Manchester murders in 1894 and was determined that he was not in the Fall River area at the time of the Borden murders. Throughout the trial, prosecutors presented several statements against Lizzie. Number one, her father was extremely wealthy, giving Lizzie the motive of killing her parents in order to obtain her father's inheritance. Number two, if Andrew died before Abby, Abby or Abby's intermediate family would receive Andrew's money. Three, there was tension between the sisters and Abby Borden. Four, Lizzie's supposed attempt to buy prussic acid the day before the murders are very suspicious. Five, she did not have a reliable alibi during the murders. Six, the police could not find the letter that Abby Borden supposedly received from a sick friend which prosecution stated that it was a fabrication by Lizzie to make others believe that Abby was away from the scene of the crime. 7. The police reported that the barn had a lack of evidence the zone was up there, therefore Lizzie was not looking for a fissure sinker in the attic of the barn. 8. The fact that the Bordens died about an hour apart from each other stated that the killer most likely stayed on the premises to kill Andrew rather than leave and come back. Both Bridget and Lizzie stated that they were on the property all morning. And nine, Alice Russell's report of seeing Lizzie burning her paint-covered dress. On June 5, 1893, Prosecutor Moody pulled out the handleless hatchet that was found in the basement. He stated that the hatchet was a possible murder weapon of Andrew and Abby Borden. So, Finn, do you remember the secret autopsy in the graveyard? Yeah. While making his statement, Moody took out the recently deceased Borden skulls from under a cloth of fabric. The police and prosecutors originally took the skulls as evidence. How dramatic. <laughs> um, you can't just pull out human skulls right? <laughs> on trial. The display of skulls shocked those in the courtroom, causing Lizzie to faint in her seat. To be fair, if I saw the skeletal remains of someone I knew my entire life, I would probably do the same. Yeah, I think so too. For the rest of Moody's speech, Lizzie watched from behind a fan. Moody stated that Lizzie was the only person having both a motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. For the rest of the trial, prosecutors and defenders talked to many witnesses. Allison Neighbor was called on trial and told the court about her watching Lizzie burning the stained dress. On trial, Bridget stated what had happened in the morning and her interactions with Lizzie before and after the murders. Emma testified that Lizzie and their father maintained a good relationship and a ring that was found on his body was the ring Lizzie had gifted him 10 to 15 years prior to the murders and that he worn it every day since. Emma also testified that although there was resentment for Abby among the two sisters, Lizzie and Abby still retained a positive relationship. The most important piece of information that Emma presented was that she told Lizzie to burn the dress. According to Emma, the dress was old, and as Lizzie stated, it had too many bad memories tied to it. On the ninth day of the trial, the prosecutors brought to the stand Eli Bentz, the worker who allegedly saw Lizzie trying to buy piercing acid at the store. 
The woman he believed to be Lizzie claimed that she wanted to buy the acid to clean a seal skin cape. Prosecutors believe that this was evidence of Lizzie trying to poison her family days prior. However, Lizzie denies this, and her attorneys Robinson and Jennings objected to Benson's testimony being allowed in court. They argued that it was not related to the case, and that doctors Dolan and Dapper concluded that there was no poison in the victim's stomachs after the murders. The defendant's arguments were, 1. There was a lack of evidence of premeditated murder. Like the autopsy stated, there was no poison in both Andrew and Abby's stomachs. 2. There was a lack of blood on Lizzie's dress when the officers came to the crime scene. It was impossible for them now to prove that the burnt dress had blood or paint on it, and according to police reports, all garments of clothing were searched and checked before the burning of the dress. And 3. There was no true murder weapon found on the property, and the hatchet had Moody displayed as evidence could have just been an old broken hatchet the Bordens forgot about. Besides a handleless hatchet, there were other artifacts such as two axes, a claw hammer hatchet, and a hatchet with a plain head. These easily could have been the murder weapons or just other random artifacts that had nothing to do with the case. After a long two-week trial on June 20th, the jury deliberated for only one hour before announcing its verdict. They determined that Lizzie Andrew Borden was not guilty. The jury determined that it was all circumstantial evidence against Lizzie and had no solid proof that she actually committed the murders. It's time for Let's Learn Something New! Today we will briefly learn about the rise and fall of spiritualism. In the 19th century, spiritualism was a system of belief or religious practice based on supposed communication with the spirits of the dead, especially through mediums. People would attend events such as seances. This is where believers would get their future read, speak to the deceased, or be hypnotized. Frauds and scam artists saw this wave as a big money maker and posed themselves as mediums and seance leaders. The most famous seance leaders during the 19th century were the Fox sisters, whose activities included table wrapping, and the Davenport brothers, who were famous for the spirit cabinet work. Another famous medium was named Eva Carasi. She claimed that she had the ability to materialize a spirit called Bien Boa, a 300-year-old Brahmin Hindu. In one sitting, paranormal investigator Charles Rickett reported that Boa was seen in the room breathing and moving around the room touching people. It was later revealed that Boa was just a man dressed up in a cloak with a helmet and beard. Stage magicians like John Neville Maskelyne and Harry Houdini exposed fraudulent mediums during the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Enjoy! In the first week of September 1983, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern Victorian house on the hill. Lizzie named her new home Maplecroft. The house was very bougie and it had a staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went to Andrew and then, at his death, passed it to his daughters. Lizzie also renamed herself as Elizabeth A. Borden. Despite being found not guilty, both Borden sisters, especially Lisbeth, was ostracized by the Fall River Society. Lisbeth loved going to theaters in Boston and became associated with actors. At the time, actors and performers were seen as lessers, like drunks and prostitutes. Finn, as a theater kid, what do you have to say about that? 
I mean, on the one hand, I want to say that's really weird, but also, have you ever been to an improv show? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. She would have frequent, lavish parties for all of her new friends. However, in 1905, Emma moved out of the house due to an unknown argument. This was the very last time the sisters ever saw each other. In recent research done by the Historical Society, Lizzie in her later life had a number of friends, both from Fall River and the South Shore area. In fact, the children of these friends referred to her as Auntie Borden. Finn, you would love this. Lizzie helped started the Animal Rescue League of Fall River. On June 25, 1914, a group of city women were concerned about the treatment of drafted horses in the area. The starter Helen Lighton served as the group's first president, and Lizzie Borden provided the money to start the organization. Lizzie Borden passed away of natural causes on June 1, 1927, in Fall River. After her death, she left $300,000 to the shelter. The shelter is still around today as the Foxton Animal Care and Adoption Center, with its sister building, the Sylvan Animal Clinic, established in 1998. Can you imagine being an animal shelter and being able to say, we were sponsored by Lizzie Borden? It's on their website too. Like, if it wasn't for Lizzie Borden, this would not have been able to happen. So Yeah, people are complicated. Part of me is like, it's good that she has done this with the money, but if you did do it, that doesn't outweigh murder. Yeah. I mean, saving animals' lives... Possibly murdering your father and stepmother. (laughs) And now it's time to talk about the different theories of who really killed Andrew and Abby Borden. Theory number one, Andrew and Abby Borden were killed by a random angry business associate who hated Andrew. Lizzie's theory that an unknown individual who was talking to her father days prior to the murders was the true killer. They were angry at Andrew for business reasons and wanted to kill the Bordens in retaliation. However, they would have no motive to kill Abby, and would most likely not know where to hide from the others inside the household while they waited for Andrew. Yeah, she's really reaching there. The second theory is that Lizzie Borden killed her father and stepmother. This is the most popular theory in the Borden murder case. Throughout the trial, the prosecution has stated many flaws within Lizzie's testimony, and it would seem that she is the true killer. However, like I mentioned several times before in our previous episode, she was under the influence of morphine prescribed by her doctor. Besides her statements, she has the most possible motive and opportunity to kill her father and stepmother. Please be advised that the extension of the previous theory is that there has been speculations of Andrew sexually and physically assaulting the woman within the household, yet there is no recorded evidence. Dr. Jean Kim of George Washington University states that the boarding case highlights a particular social insight or reality that society of its time has had repressed or ignored. The Borden murders reflect a key moment in our modern public consciousness about the reality of violence in private families, even the ones that seem normal. Subjects such as any forms of abuse was seen as taboo during the Edwardian period, and if it was discussed, they were seen as a private family matter. Even if these allegations were true, it would still be unlikely that the woman within the household would report it. Another possible motive of killing Andrew Borden was during the inquest, Lizzie was being questioned by attorney Knowlton regarding any killing of an animal that may have taken place at the home. 
She stated that her father killed some pigeons in the barn last May or June. If you remember from last episode, we talked about how Mr. Borden gave a really crappy excuse on why he killed the pigeons, saying that the other kids in town were going to kill them anyway, so whoop-dee-doo. This may seem very random, but there is a very popular theory that Lizzie Borden was a lesbian. Many visitors of Lizzie's house on the hill said that she was very close with a stage actress, Gertrude Lanson, or professionally known as Nancy O'Neill. This is a possible explanation why Lizzie never married, but then again, if she did marry a man, then he would have had control of all her money. Yeah, Edwardian era would be like that sometimes. Many people who follow this case believe that Mr. Borden found out that Lizzie and their neighbor Alice had a romantic relations in the barn. Also, since this is the late Edwardian era, LGBT people were not socially accepted. Her father might have found out Lizzie was gay and in retaliation killed her pigeons. This might have given Lizzie the motivation to kill her father. Another theory was that Lizzie was having romantic relations with her family's maid, Bridget. The theory goes that both worked together in killing the Bordens and fabricated the whole story of them doing chores around the house. After Lizzie killed Abby, Bridget would have helped Lizzie change clothes before her father came home. However, it is unlikely that Lizzie or Bridget killed the Bordens so that they can be together. After the trials and receiving a large sum of money, Bridget moved away from the Bordens' estate to have a ranch of her own. Besides a possible love affair, Bridget really did not have any true motive to kill her employers, especially since she had a positive relationship with Abby Borden. Our next theory is that John Morris killed Andrew for money. If you remember from last episode, Morris was Lizzie's uncle and the brother of her birth mother, as well as a business partner with Mr. Borden in a livestock business. He was never suspected to be the murderer, but many researchers have doubted that he was entirely innocent. Many historians believe that Moore's surprise visit was very suspicious. Author Richard Little and Beverly Folsid believe that Moore's was a real killer in their book. Apparently, the business was falling apart at the time of the murders. In his statement to the police, he was visiting his sick relative down the road from the Borden's house at the time of the double murder with the town's doctor. Richard Little argued that Morse was visiting the same doctor that was at the Borden family home looking over the bodies at the same time. Little believes that this hole in the alibi added with his partnership with Lizzie's father makes him the prime suspect. Remember how I said that Abby's body and the rug were the only things bloody in the guest room? Yeah. Some researchers believe that the killer was someone who had worked in the medical field or some field that included knowledge of blood splatter. Morris had a background as a butcher. He would know the ways on how to prevent blood from spattering as well as how to clean it up. Morris left Fall River after Lizzie was acquitted and never returned. He died at the age of 79. Our final theory is that it was a group effort of Lizzie, Emma, John Morris, and Bridget. Everyone had something to gain if Mr. and Mrs. Borden died. There are different theories within this theory. One of the theories was that the murder might have been planned by Emma or John, and Lizzie and Bridget were meant to be the witnesses. Another one was that Emma and Lizzie could have paid John to kill both Andrew and Abby so they could inherit the fortune. In all the theories of Lizzie working with one or more partner, they could have helped her change out of the supposed bloody dress and change into new clothes. It is possible that Bridget had some part of this theory. If she saw Lizzie or Morris kill the Bordens, they would have paid her off to make a persuading alibi. Lizzie has been a lasting figure in folk culture. She has been depicted in literature, music, film, theater, and television. Among the earlier portrayals, she was in a 1948 ballet, 
as well as a 1952 Broadway musical, Lizzie Borden, and 1965 opera called Lizzie Borden. There is also a punk rock show called Lizzie the Musical, which I high-key recommend, my dudes. On stage, there are four female singers who are very talented and very angry. I was actually listening to the soundtrack while writing the script. Now, I hate to give spoilers, but this play does suggest that Lizzie killed the Bordens due to sexual abuse. In 1975, ABC released The Legend of Lizzie Borden, a television film starring Elizabeth Montgomery as Lizzie Borden. In 2014, the Lifetime channel produced Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, a television film with Christina Ritchie portraying as Lizzie Borden. I also recommend this movie. The film was followed by The Lizzie Borden Chronicles, a limited series and sequel to the television film. The most recent film is the 2018 feature film Lizzie, which depicts Lizzie and Bridget having a romantic relationship with each other. The movie stars Chloe Sevigny as Borden and Kristen Stewart as Sullivan. There are many documentaries based on the Borden murders, and my favorite one is from the show Female Killers, which you can watch on YouTube for free. Many of the documentaries that I found usually depicted Lizzie as the murderer. There have been many books describing the murder and theories, such as Cold Case to Case Close and The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Clara Robinson. There is also a joke on Facebook that says, Do not accept a friend request from Lizzie Borden. You will get hacked. Some songs that this case had inspired were Lizzie Borden by the Chad Michael Trio, Alice Cooper's Inmates or We're All Crazy, Cannibal Corpse Hatchet in the Head, Lizzie Borden by Big Coffin Hunters, Lizzie Borden by the band Macabre. I just realized these are all pretty heavy metal bands, so there you go to our heavy metal fans out there, all two of you. And, of course, the popular skipping rope song that I'm sure we all know, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Alright, Finn, do you think Lizzie was guilty for the murder of Andrew and Abby Borden? I don't know, man. There's so many theories. So, I want to bring up Richard Little's addition to the Lizzie Borden rhyme. Lisbeth's lawyers presented the facts, which persuaded the jury though not the hacks. When society condemned what she had done, they soiled her name and continued to shun. I like about this because, when you think about it, even if she was innocent, we still associate her to being the murderer of Andrew and Abby. So what's my final verdict? I don't know. I want to say that it was Morris, but I don't know if he did it on his own or if Emma and Lizzie asked him to do it. I am glad that Lizzie did great things afterwards, such as starting the animal shelter, but, of course, like we said before, that doesn't outweigh murder. Sadly, despite these theories, the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden remain unsolved. To this day, Lizzie Borden's trial continues to stir up controversy among historians, feminists, authors, students of criminology, students of law, and, of course, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Appeal. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can always know when to come back for more cases of Women on Trial. Sex Appeal Women on Trial was brought to you by us, Kit Elliott and Katie Clark. Music is Dark Tranquility by Anno Domini Beats. Special thanks to Framingham State University's WDJM Radio. We would like to thank Melin Costello from MC Design Photography for creating our logo. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram under MC Design underscore photography. 
Remember to leave a five-star rating and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram at Sex Appeal Podcast and Twitter at Sex Appeal Pod. You can also visit our website, sexappealpodcast.weebly.com, for additional content, including more details about our episodes, like written transcriptions and pictures. If you have any questions about our show or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at sexappealpod at gmail.com. Thank you.